Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to my independence report, and thank you for paying attention and being here today. We've got a heck of a show for you today. Uh, the gentleman that we're going to be talking to uh, has a life experience like I don't think there are probably 10 people on the planet that have had a life experience like he has. His name is Robert A. Jensen, and uh, he's got a book, a memoir out, and it's it's incredible the, the, the things that he's been through in his life. And, um, 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 Robert, um, first of all, how are you today? I'm good. And, um, and it's good that not many people have had my life. I don't think they'd want it. Oh boy. No kidding. No kidding. How did you, I, I guess the first question I have for you is how in the world did you get into this? Um, well, it, it is a different job and it wasn't a career path or a plan I followed, I, I had to pay for school. And so one of the jobs that was open in my degree program was being a deputy sheriff. So it was law enforcement. And it was a great job when I was 21 back in California in the 80s. Um, it was exposure to forensics. It was an exposure to dealing with people in crisis. I mean, I, I don't think we had a shift that we didn't have a couple felony arrests or felony calls. And then I went active duty in the Army, which was, was the only plan I had. I wanted to be a, an Army officer. And in the Army, I spent a lot of time in what they call quarter, the Quartermaster Corps. And part of that was mortuary affairs. And it just was at the timing when the doctrine or the, the plans needed updating. And we had our uh, invaded Haiti. We had Bosnia. And then we had the Oklahoma City bombing. So I just kind of fell into it because that was my job. I commanded the only mortuary unit. And after that, it was, if something happened, when, you know, just call Robert. He's the one who's done it. And, you know, he can, he knows the logistics and can put some people together. And when I left the army, I came to Kenyon, which was starting up in the U.S., a private company at the time, and just ended up staying there. It's, it's amazing. Now, um, just to let you know, I know a little bit about what you've had to go through. My executive producer is a former funeral director. And she was the one that used to take people out of their homes and take them to where they needed to go. And so I'm a little bit aware of it. But just so our audience knows, you have been, and I'm a bit of a student of history, you have been in some of the most historically significant places on our planet over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. So so I can explain a little bit about what we do, if, if that would help. Oh, surely. Surely. Yeah. So when we have a... And, and and give me give me a little minute to ramble here. Sorry. Nope, you're good. When we deal with loss, and and that's what I deal with is massive human loss. Although sometimes it may only be a few, but typically it's a mass fatality, which means the number is something that exceeds the capabilities of the local community, the local authorities, or the company that's that's involved. And when we have just a, a single loss event, like your, your producer or funeral director goes in, there's a system set up to really walk a family through that loss. It also means that the families have to make decisions pretty quickly. And decisions 
our action and decisions are almost an acceptance that something has happened and an action has to be taken. When we have a mass fatality, like the events I've gone to, bombings, plane crashes, um, earthquakes, train accidents, boat sinkings, fires, the families don't get to make decisions right away because there's not actions they can take. And in some cases, because we just don't have recoveries, not like, you know, as on TV, it's even harder for the families. So what we do is we go in, we try to assist the authorities with the search, the recovery, and the identification, and then the return of the loved one, if it's possible, and their personal effects, hence the name of the book, Personal Effects. In doing that, there's some things that are need, need to be done, a call center, um, family assistance or disaster human services, crisis communications so that we can explain things to people. And because mass fatalities are, you know, unfortunately big news, and they don't happen in the same location, they happen in, in different geographical locations, but they capture the interest of the media, they are significant. And um, I started the, probably my first big mass fatality was Oklahoma City, which of course was, was horrible, horrible for the was 188 people or um, 168 that were killed, the 19 children. Mm -hmm. um, because it was senseless. And, and we know as humans that there are things that are going to happen because we're humans and we make mistakes. We build airplanes, we fly airplanes. We're going to make mistakes. We know that there are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be tsunamis. We can't control those. But terrorism as a society, we can't prevent because there are going to be bad people in the world, but they're senseless. And so they're to me a little bit harder because it's violence that typically doesn't solve anything. It just creates more violence and more loss. And since I deal with those families directly, I, I don't know how they feel, but I know it's, it's really hard on them. Especially like a, um, a situation like Oklahoma City. Uh, those people left their homes to go to work as they had done hundreds of times before and then and then the uh, bombing happened and and suddenly everybody's thrown into a place they not only don't want to go but never thought that they'd have to go and 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 deal with all that and then you have to go in and work with them to try and figure out how to help them the best right yeah, and Oklahoma has, a, has a, two good examples to, to try to answer your question. So the first one is, and, and it's one I asked about, you know, why aren't you afraid? How do you deal with life? And I, and I like living. Life is, is fun. I get one go around on this planet, and I'm, I'm going to, I hope, make it as fun as possible. It may not be great for everyone with me, but, you know, I'm going to have those ups and downs because I, I want to, until the last minute, I want to I wanna go for it. And um we don't sometimes control things i don't think we control our time of loss but we can speed it up i guess maybe that is a form of control so in oklahoma we had a deceased a woman who um had two different shoes on she had a high heel and a tennis shoe and at first you look and go you know why do you have two shoes why would a person have two shoes on and then you think about it for a minute and you realize well anyone who's ever you know had a a, a female friend that walks to work and then has to change shoes because they don't want to walk in heels. So she was sit down at her desk, had taken off one shoe and was putting on the other shoe when the bomb went off. Mm 
Now, had she been three or four minutes late that day, she'd been stuck in the stairwell that was semi-protected from the blast. She wouldn't have been on our table. She didn't do anything wrong. It just happened. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. But, but you know, life is not going to be fair. And so one of the first lessons with Oklahoma was that, wow, this is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. So I call that zero. In other words, when we go to work at a mass fatality, the best we can do is zero because we can't make it better. Right. We can't uninjure someone. We can't bring back the dead. So the best we as a system, and I say we as a system, it's not one person. This is not, you know, the Bob Jensen show. This is, is, is a team of hundreds of people. The best the system can do is not make it worse. And the way the system does that is by listening to the families and setting expectations. But that's where the system makes mistakes. And I saw that in Oklahoma. And not making mistakes because people want to, but we make these events political. Mm -hmm. And we have people who come and say, well, I wouldn't want to know that, or this is how I would do it, or this is what I would want. And you have to tell those people, well, it's really not about you. How you feel doesn't matter. How sad you are, how hard it is matters not. It's not about you. You came to work to do your job, which you volunteered to do, to help these people. And what matters now is what's done to help them, because that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day, that and coming home safely. Oh, exactly. It, it, must be, <clears throat> it must be really, really challenging for you to be able to, to go to, and I keep thinking of Oklahoma with the daycare center. When the children that were that were killed in the daycare center, um, and that must have just been heart wrenching beyond belief. Well, they're all, and, and everyone always asks you, you know, it's the hardest one, and and again, it doesn't matter how I feel. And I have, I have, I tell the story in Oklahoma of a small child. I, I think she was we picked her up in the Social Security or the fire department covering Social Security, and. She came in, and, and the local people had been there since day one, and I was in the Army, so I think we were there on day four, day three. And um, th she came in and was laying on the table, and, you know, and, and because of the way sometimes bombs kill people, it's, there may be a, a blast injury that's not apparent or a collapse or suffocation, and so they, they, they may look fairly like they're asleep. And and then of course you know the concrete dust and everything which is there and um, brought her out and she was on the table and this the uncle said God, you know we're done we we just we've we've done so many we 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 need a break hey that's why you have support that's why you have people who come in so I'll take care of her and um, I had a cell phone it was you know at the time one of those big brick things that you know took up your whole pocket <laughs> and um, yeah. my my ex wife um, my wife at the time the mother of my daughter who's probably pretty close in age to the little girl calls. Oh, you know, your, your daughter, I'm going to put her on the phone. She wants to talk to you because I'm used to being gone all the time. And it's, you know, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I, I can't talk right now. And, and I have to sit and look and say, you know, my little girl's home safe in bed. And, and this little girl's on a morgue table and doesn't get to go home. And in a few hours or in the next morning after tentative ID has been complete, the medical examiner will call her grandparents because I think her mother was also deceased. Um, so those things can get you down, but then you remember that, again, I'm there to help people. 
And I've had to at, at a very early age. I was a deputy sheriff. I was 21. And and I'd go to calls for out-of-control minors. And it would be, what, three years, four years younger than me? <laughs> you know, you knock on the door and the parents are, well, where's the adult? And I'm like, yeah, it's me. I'm, I'm what you get in the county because we're far and few between. And so what's the problem? And, um, and then I'd go, well, my friends were out in college getting drunk. I was going to tell the parents of another child who had been drunk or hit by a drunk driver. Their kid wasn't coming home that night. Um, so it was very different for me. And, and I learned that that's, that's, again, part of the job. And um, I'm going to go home. So at the end of the day, how I feel is, is not as important as how they feel. In, in your career, and you've been through, uh, if you, if you, there's a litany and, and there's a list of lots and lots of them, including the uh, tsunami that took, uh, what did it take, a quarter of a million people? Yeah, I tell people I've been to two events in my lifetime that have killed each event separately, almost a quarter of a million people, or roughly a quarter of a million people each in the matter of time it took most people to drink a cup of coffee. One was the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami that hit multiple countries, but obviously Asia the hardest. And then the 2000, January 2010 Haitian earthquake. Oh, my goodness. So how do you, when you're going through all of that, and I know that you can rationalize it, but does it show up in other places in your life? And yeah, I, I think that my my loved ones, uh, co-workers, <laughs> they probably bear a higher burden than I do. I'm, I don't look at things the way most people do. Things that bother most people don't bother me because when somebody calls and says there's a problem, my first question is, well, how many people died? Most of the times there's none. Oh, well, okay. It's not a problem. It's, it's, an so inconvenience. it's, it's something to deal with because that's the good part. And that's, that's the positive approach. It is, but it can be frustrating for people because when your, your spouse is at home and the washing machine is broke or the refrigerator doesn't work, that's a big deal to them because their frame of reference is very different. So the frame of reference that I go through life with is different than most of the people I'm around. And so I have to remind myself, no, that is important. And then things that don't bother other people because they don't see as a possibility bother me. I go into a hotel and I, you know, I want to stay between the second and 10th floor. Um, and I want to count the number of doors to the fire exit. And if I go to a concert or a venue, I, my head's on a swivel and I'm, you know, I'm, where was the exit when I came in? Where was the exit when I came out? Something, if I feel weird about something, well, you know what? We're not staying. Um, and so that's probably where it shows up. If you come to the house, it's probably organized in what most people would consider a very anal fashion, if I can say that on live. You can. You can. Um, because I'm always used to, for for most of my adult life, I've spent time um, being prepared to always leave, never being able to commit to anything with certainty. And an example, again, um, when my daughter was very young, I, her mom said, oh, you know, dad, dad will be home this weekend. And she says, no, mommy, dad said he's planning to be home. Um, <laughs> so those are kind of some of the, the, the things that I think have, have made it different. Um, it's, well, it's first of all, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to thank you on behalf of all of us. Uh, thank you for doing what you do. 
Oh, you're, you're welcome. It's, it's a job. But, you know, there's so many jobs out there that every job is important because everything is part of a system. And and that's one of the things I think people forget in the world because we get so focused on what's going on around our immediate face with our telephone or our computer. We forget to see all the things that help. And, and disasters are an opportunity where you see people doing everything, stopping whatever they were doing to do anything they can to help, whether it's a donation center, whether it's let's go clean up the street, whether it's let's go help pull moldy, stinky carpet out of our neighbor's house um, because they're not here and we want to help it, you know, from the flood. And, and the resilience, which I think is something we've lost a little bit in the U.S. I think a lot of people have confused convenience with necessity. And electricity to power an oxygen tank that you need to breathe is a necessity. Uh, electricity to power AC or your TV because you don't want to be hot for a little while or because you want to watch TV because you're bored is a convenience. True. That's 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 really true. Um, let's talk about your book. Um, I, I, love, I love the title, which is uh, Personal Effects, because in the course of your work, you also gather the personal effects of people that are no longer with us. And in some cases they'll never be found uh, because of the horrific nature of the injuries. Is that true? Absolutely. And, and that's why we called it personal effects. Our first goal was always to have a, a human remains, a deceased. So a family can make a disposition in a technical term, the way they would like, whether it's cremation, burial, sea, however many hundreds of ways that people can, can use to memorialize their loved ones. But those always aren't possible. And and a deceased, even a cremated deceased in an urn that you may take home isn't the same as having a personal effect. And, and the example I use, think of the, I use myself, um, my grandfather always smoked a pipe. So if I smell a certain tobacco now or a certain cologne, that brings back a very positive memory um, because it's a stimulus. And so the personal effects, the things that we recover, and we've been very fortunate. We had Egypt Air 990 that went down in October 1998, 99, 99, I guess, off the coast of Rhode Island, going from LA to New York to Cairo. That's right. And, um, you know, several hundred feet of water and, and video cameras, cameras were recovered. And we were able to get some of the memory devices, some of the uh, film and, able to save it after some detailed and, and diligent lab work and give images back to families, images they thought they'd lost. Now they don't have the loved one, but they at least get the last pictures that the person took. The notebook with the handwritten notes, that special present, that, that special watch, uh, all those things that people look at go, oh, why would anyone want that back is priceless for, for families. And I've, you know, we, we spent, gosh, almost two years in the United Kingdom after the Grenfell Tower fire, which was an apartment flat or tower block in Chensington and Kelsey, Chelsea, just kind of in what, southeast, southwest London, that caught fire. And unfortunately, 71 people were killed yeah. to return property back to people lost loved ones. And some of them were photo albums. And, you know, you can see the look on the family's faces when you can present the photo album back to them. Um, and you have examples of the mother who, when you give a shirt back, she says, I don't want you to wash it. I want you to give it to me the way it is. 
Because for 17 years, I washed my son's shirt and I'm going to be the last person to wash his shirt, not you. And, and it's about beginning that journey. And when I talk about in the book, and, and I think I try to, to tell the same story, is I, I think of it as a highway. Think of Highway 5. You, know, you guys are on the, on the West Coast, uh, Seattle yep. area. Yep. Um, I'd call it a highway where you move. But if I remember correctly, you probably spent a lot of time parked on it. And um, yes, sir. so when you are moving on it, the, you know, you have that journey you make every day. It's a routine. And all of a sudden, your loved one, family member, relative is goes in a mass fatality and they're, they're missing or presumed deceased or it's a fire somewhere far away or somewhere you can't access right away. It's like the road has just opened up in front of you. And so our job, the job of the responders is to build a bridge for you as a family member to drive across. So we have to make it comfortable for you to drive across by, by telling you what to expect and telling you how the system works and, and telling you what's, what can be expected and what not be expected, the good news and the bad news. And unfortunately, there's a lot more bad news. And then it's up to the person to get on that bridge and drive across. And some people don't. Some people start and they stop. Some people don't. Life doesn't go on because there wasn't an answer to them. There wasn't an acceptance. There wasn't action to take. And for some people, the personal effects are a big part of getting on that bridge. And in the U.S., after an air crash and things like that, people used to put them in the dumpster. Ooh, nobody would want that. They, somebody would make a decision. Yet again, another choice taken from the families. And that's why personal effects are so important to families and why the system has changed and, and not very, you know, since the mid-90s with the passage of the family assistance law. So really not that great a time. It's really important for a family, that if they don't have their loved one anymore, to have the memory of them. Yeah. And the and the personal effects can can be part of that memory. It, absolutely. And and every family's different. There's no hundred percent. And this is this is looking at a forest, and every tree is different. And every tree has in this case, brand, you know, the analogy branches, but here every person has a circle of family and friends that are all going to have different needs and wants and meanings and relationships with that, that person who's now deceased. And so it's, yeah, it's trying to make sure that we are meeting their needs. And in a lot of cases, just like having a loved one back, having the personal effects, sometimes those are almost more important than what's occurred. And this is where businesses and companies get it wrong. Even governments, uh, they, you know, Oklahoma City, so you guys want to focus on the bomb. The bomb's gone off. Yeah. Families know the bomb went off. What they need to know is what happens next. So we're almost have this huge conflict where half the people in charge are focused on what's occurred and the people who need assistance they don't know the why or the technical reason, but they know what's happened. And now they need to know what's next for them because we, for the dead, the best we can do is give them a name, give dignity and disposition for a family. But where we focus is for the living. Do you find that uh, when you're talking to uh, survivors or, or, or family members that they're, they're particularly interested in how their loved one died or um, some are, and some aren't. Everyone is different. And I am about trying to be as truthful as, as you can be. And so that means saying, I don't know. That means saying, I have to find out and come back to you. But it also means asking them, when they ask you a question, making sure that you understand the question 
and that they understand the question because once you tell somebody something, they may never know. And, and a common question I get is, well, you know, did they know they were going to die? Did they suffer? And, you know, were they alive? And I always mean, well, by alive, do you mean were they aware? Because there's a difference between being conscious and aware of something and, and being alive. You can be alive, but completely unconscious because of the G-forces, the effects of a, you know, depressurization or, or sudden deceleration or you know, gravity, et cetera. And, and so those are the, the questions we try to make sure. And, and again, I, I encourage coroners and medical examiners to be truthful. We've, we've had cases where we've had um, some pretty bad fires and, and people fearing for the fire, made the decision to try to exit a building by jumping. And so, so well, you know, we can't put that they jumped. I said, well, it's going to come out. But was it suicide or was it a last-ditch attempt to try to save yourself? And so, there's there's pictures of that at the World, at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Yeah, that. and there's from the MGM Grand that happened in Vegas and, unfortunately, from Grenfell Tower. So it's about, again, being honest with the family and saying, I don't know what the intent was. I think the intent was to do everything they could to get home and to do it without suffering or making it harder for anyone else. And sometimes that was the only door available to them. Sometimes the choices that you have are not very good in either case. It's either you can jump or you can burn to death or you can get inhalation or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, unfortunately, sometimes in life there are times when you're faced with decisions and there are no good choices. There's only the best bad choice. It's exciting that for you though, that, that you can, that you can actually make a difference in the people that, that are still here and you can get their personal effects to them. And, um, it's, it's, it's changed their lives a little bit. And it's also, uh, uh changed the situation for them sometimes. Well, I, I, I mean, that would be the goal that that is the hope. And, um, and I, and I hope we've been successful. I hope the system is, because I don't think anyone goes into this line of work to try to make it harder for anyone. The goal is to make it better. Otherwise, why would you want to see what we see or have the have the memories we have? And, and it is one, of, and it's probably one of the things that why I stayed in it, because I felt it was an area in the world where you could do good. You could make a difference. I was never going to be a scientist. I was never going to invent something. Um, so I, I wanted to having been a deputy and seeing the difference you could make uh, for people sometimes um, that it, it was good to be able to leave the world, hopefully a little bit better than where you found it. I mean, isn't that kind of the goal for everyone? Oh yeah. Well, I, I got an off the beat question for you, which is uh, I was a bus driver for 11 years and there's a lot of, a lot of times when I will uh, be dreaming and I'll dream about being in a bus and not being able to go anywhere or not being, do you ever dream about the work that you do and, and the, the things that you've seen and experienced and how do you handle that in the middle of the night? Well, um, yeah, we, the psychologists will call that invasive images and, <laughs> and um, Although I'm sure being a bus driver, you probably we have some of those too. <laughs> yeah, that are, that are probably pretty bad. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have them. I, I will have images that will pop up. I see things. Smells are really strong. So uh -huh. I look by an airport here in Key West, and I'll walk my dog, and I smell the jet fuel, and I 
takes me, you know, to any number of plane crashes. Jackhammers always remind me of Oklahoma City um, mm. uh, because they just, you know, were jackhammers, jackhammers, grinders, big trucks. I think about, um, you know, the truck that blew up the uh, Canal Hotel and with the UN in Baghdad. So, yeah, there's things I see and I pop up and then I have to, you know, remind myself I'm not there and, um, or what do I do to solve, you know, am I, am I thinking about something because there's a problem that needs to be solved strangely enough? Cause I, I don't typically have a trouble sleeping. Um, I get an airplane and my husband hates it cause we go on a long haul flight and he doesn't sleep. And the minute I'm in the chair before the door shut and I'm out, you know, I'll wake up when we land because I'm usually tired is now that I'm semi starting to retire and do stuff. I'm almost worried that I don't have anything to worry about. So it's different. <laughs> so you literally have uh, circled the globe from Asia to England to uh, uh, the Middle East to the United States and in, in, in your work at helping to uh, put all of these things to bed. Um, uh, yeah, I've been to about 100 countries. I like travel, um, but I've also been to fun. I went to Nepal. I went up to Everest. Um, I've been... Um, you know, multiple different places. I've been to almost all the states because I love the states. Um, so I like travel because it's a great way to meet people. And uh, my first job in the army was not a good job. I was um, a uh, launch control officer, fire control officer for Pershing missiles. These were nuclear missiles that were based in in Germany, specifically targeted at Russia. It's what they brought the Soviets to the bargaining table for the now defunct INF treaty. And so I sat in a box and I listened to radios and I had safes and I opened up codes and then I would, um, you know, we'd do drills and sometimes you knew they were drills and sometimes you didn't. And you learned and said, wow, you know, we, we just can't hate each other that much naturally. There has to be something. So you go meet people. And then when you travel, you actually see, and I've driven from Beirut to Damascus. I've been through areas of the world that people never go and you really find out people have some different cultures and different religions and different beliefs, but basically there's a lot of similar, there's more similarities than there are differences. And we're not born wanting to hate each other. We're not born wanting to kill each other. We learned that. And one of the bigger experiences for me, and I talk a little bit about it in the book was Bosnia. I went to Bosnia in 95. And if you, you know, remember history, the Balkans, oh, yeah. The Tuzla market, Srebrenica, uh, uh, Sarajevo. It wasn't a fun place to be in 95. And you think, my gosh, this was where we had the Olympics. This is modern times. This is stuff you learned about in history. We're not supposed to have this anymore. Why are we still doing death camps and mass graves? And so there has to be a reason why. And so you want to find out how do people turn on each other? How do I... How do I have my neighbor one day and then he's my enemy the next? Is it some sort of tribalism that that, that people do? Uh, no, I think it's because we covered up problems from the past and we never solved we never solved them. And I use Bosnia as an example. When Marshal Tito came in at the end of World War II, we're all Yugoslavian. Forget anything that's happened. Not discuss it. Forget it. And people didn't. So, of course, within years of his death, they had the... Um, the Bosnian War started, and part of that was the mass graves. And one of the changes was, well, instead of just not identifying people, let's take the 17 or 20,000 people that are missing, that just disappeared, and try to identify them. 
and answer questions so people don't get stuck on this this hamster wheel, so people don't get stuck in the cycle of hate, but figure out how do we return the dead? How do we help answer questions so that we can have the Hague, Truth and Reconciliation, you know, South Africa? How do we have those solutions so that people can get answers? Because it's the lack of answers. It's not going to take the hate or the anger away, but it might reduce it. Just like in, a, in a, what I call mass fatality, a civil, civil disaster, I, I tell people, look, family's first call wasn't to an attorney, wasn't to the press. They called you airline CEO. When your plane crashed, their first call was to you. And it was for help. They went to litigation out of rage. Litigation is an extension of rage. Because what are they litigating for? Right. To get their loved one back? Because it's not going to happen. They're litigating because all of a sudden they see an opportunity to get wealthy? No, that's not why people do this. They're litigating because they're angry. Mm -hmm. They and, want justice. Yeah, and they're not so angry because of the cause of the event. They're angry because of the response. And all the time. Yeah. All the time. And it's a lesson people want to learn on their own repeatedly. It's it's maddening. It's frustrating for me because it's like, my gosh, guys, this is this is not new. New to you, not new to the world, not new to me. But at one point, and that's one of the reasons why this show exists, is that at one point we have to get rid of hate, division, and fear and recognize that we are all in this together. And we and that we, that killing each other just it, it's a dead end approach. No pun intended. <laughs> Because, yes, it's never you know, going to end well. No, it'll never end well. And and uh, I'm glad that you are doing the work that you're doing because this book, uh, um, Personal Effects, and it's based upon, you know, the, your experiences and, and how you have been able to help people and to understand and, and to work through it. Um, I, th I think it's a wonderful thing that you've done. And, uh, I, you know, you're right. I could not do what you do. You have some special gift from God that allows you to be able to do what you can do because that that that's pretty amazing. Uh, well, well, thank you, and I I completely agree. Um, you know, when I was a deputy sheriff, I learned you can respond to a scene and you can ratchet it up, or you can tone it down. Now, there's cases there there are some bad people in the world, and they're just always going to be bad people in the world, but they're not the majority. No, they're the minority. Most of the other people are in the middle. My f my favorite story is, you know, you go to, uh, like in, in our world, it's the Seattle Seahawks. And everybody loves the Seattle Seahawks. So you take 60,000 strangers and you put them into a stadium. And they're all focused on the Seattle Seahawks and winning the game. So everybody's friendly. Everybody's nice. Everybody, you know, when they score, everybody's high-fiving strangers, hugging people they don't know, that sort of thing, because they're all, they've got a common purpose. They've got a common idea of what they want, and that's to see the Seahawks win. So for those three hours, there's a serious, there's unity in that 60,000 uh, people stadium. And then they get in their cars and they flip each other off on the way home. Yeah, run you over to get out of the parking lot. Exactly. And, and go ahead. And I think that's because during that three hours, there's a break. And, and that's what we don't do anymore. We don't take those communal breaks. We don't take those breaks because we're never off. 
And so you're wiring yourself, just like I think if you ask people to use a map today, they can't use maps. They don't know cardinal directions by looking at the sun or the moon or the sky. And so um, the same thing, they go to the game, they're focused on the game if they put their phone down, if they're excited, and then all of a sudden, man, this person next to me is laughing, or I can see that this person just spilled their beer. And now they're going to go home with beer over their pants. And man, I've done that 10 times. So it's funny. And I feel sorry for them. And it's something shared. But it's when we get in the car, the windows are rolled up, the radio's on. And now we're immediately thinking about everything else we have to do instead of thinking about enjoying where we're at now. Exactly. That's, and that's, that's so important. The, the Eckhart Tolle did, wrote uh, The Power of Now, which is a book about you know living in the present. Um, I, you know, one time I interviewed a cancer survivor and, um, she had, was a four time cancer survivor and, uh, the wisdom that she had was, well, you know, if you keep one foot in the past and the other foot in the future, you're going to piss on the present. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, so, you know, we, we, you know, people like you, they can help people in this book, I think will go a long way to do that. Well, I, I, again, it's not going to be a book for everyone. I, I do hope people find it useful. Um, I hope they find it interesting, and, and I hope they find it something to think about. What are you going to do next? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, you know, it's, it's not. there's not light switches in life. I'm um, staying chairman of the company now, and my husband and I have sold the company. We're... Um, I'll stay as chairman emeritus. What I'd like to do, I think there's some better things we could do in the U.S. for crisis response and not just in the preparedness field, but in the consequence management field. So I'd like to take some of the lessons or the examples that I've um, lived and, and help bring them to life so that maybe the government, we can think about doing things differently. I still think that there's some room for improvement for families. Um, how they're treated following a loss that we could benefit from. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time and effort on that. Um, there's many things I selfishly I put off personally um, because there was there was always the next disaster. There was always the next crisis, and there were they weren't things you could just say, yeah, I'll, I'll deal with it tomorrow because it's that's not how the business works. Um, so I'd like to. I've got a whole pile of stuff that I've collected: my cameras, my scuba diving, uh, my uh, BMW, uh, you know, twelve fifty uh, mountain bike that I want to take up into the up to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, so there's nice. some things like that I'd like to do. Beautiful drive if you if you decide to take it. It's it's a really is a pretty drive. Oh yeah, I well, I was I was stationed at Fort Lewis for a oh. little while, so and I lived in Oregon for a little bit, and so um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of that that part of the world. Oh, that's 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 just awesome. So it's it's great for, it's great fun. Are you going to write another book? Do you see you have another book in you? Um, you know, I I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I, in fact, I got an email from um. One of my, um, uh, you know, people involved in the books, one of the lawyers, as a matter of fact, today, who said, "Oh, it's a good book," but you know, we could use several books on each one of these incidents. So, um, the problem with writing the book is that every time I go through it, I'm I'm having to not relive, and certainly not the way a family does, but all the details that I had wanted to to put away are all the the things that I wanted to 
to not have to revisit. You have to revisit because you have, you, you know, if you're going to write it well or try to write it well, um, you have to look and, and, and try to try to remember those details because I, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a, I, I, that's how I write conversationally. Um, so I, I then have to have that conversation and some of those conversations I I'm, you know, if I never have to have again, I'd be okay. And just, just as just, I'm just purely curious is that um, when somebody is in a mass casualty event and it happens suddenly like Oklahoma city, or like the tsunami that they weren't expecting to have happen and all of a sudden the water coming. Is, is there an expectation from those people that, oh, no, I'm going to die now? Or is it a matter of fear that they're just running? Or what? If, what is their thought process? Um, I think you'd have to ask survivors. My experience with them is there's multiple different. There is this can't be happening. And, and part of what people do is they panic. And those, those people sadly don't survive. They're the people who we find in front of a perfectly good exit in a fire because they were headed to the entrance. They came in and didn't, didn't look at the exits that they were passing by. There's people, and I'm probably in the, the second category who go, Oh, that was weird. And an example I use when I was working for the University Police Department, I wrote parking tickets. It's my first job before I was a deputy sheriff. And one night I was writing the tickets before I'd been to the academy or anything. So I was kind of dumb. And I let a, a, I call my kid, he's a student, walk up behind me. And I, without turning, and when I turned around, he had a pistol and he had, you know, he was pulled it out and cocked it and said, that's, that's my car. I said, well, <laughs> yeah, sorry, tickets written. And, and it wasn't like, oh, this guy's going to shoot me. And it was more like, you know, it's, we got paid once a month. Your students, I, I, you know, I had my fund money. I paid for school. And it's like, it's the end of the month. I just worked all month. And now this twit's going to shoot me for a friggin' parking ticket for parking in the red zone. Um, and he says, well, it's a stage prop. And, and <laughs> he, he walked away. So um, I radioed it in and he... Uh, the the campus police um, picked him up right away of course and, and he was lucky because we then one of our officers had actually killed somebody with a, a toy gun um so i i don't think in some of those situations you really have time to think i i think that you know a lot of people in the tsunami for example just and part of what makes it difficult is people don't react quickly after the events occurred and sometimes during the event people don't react and, and sometimes you have a matter of minutes or seconds. And sometimes they're given wrong information. The Grenfell Tower um, is a prime example where the people called there in the UK, it's 999, our 911 system, and asked, they were on the upper floors. And it's 24, 25, four you know, story building. So, well, do we evacuate? And the fire department policy at the time was you shelter in place. Now that works great if you have a fire in the middle of your building because you know the floors and everything are going to block it. But this fire had within 20 minutes gone from the fourth floor to the 24th floor outside, so it was circling the building. So the only good answer was get out the middle. And instead of listening to themselves, they listened to the dispatch, and, and unfortunately, some of them died. And and although it's not my book, but Gavin De Becker wrote a great book called The Gift of Fear, and it's one I, I made my daughter read, and it's about learning to listen to that 
voice. You don't always know why it's telling you something. It's your subconscious, but it's telling you something's not right here. Don't worry about what people think. Listen to your voice in your head. And run! Sometimes run, sometimes take cover, sometimes react. Um, Some... Um, there are many different things that you do, but you, that's why you have to be aware. And if your head's buried in a phone or not paying attention, then, um, you're probably not going to see everything you have to. Now, the great news is 98% of the time in the world, you, you're just going to walk into a light post or, you know, a, a, you know, a sign, sign on the street. There's not going to be a catastrophic failure. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I, I, this isn't a political show, and I, so I don't really want to talk about uh, um, uh, gun laws or any of that, but it would surely be nice because I know in your work you have uh, been part of many mass shootings in this country, and it's, it's, it's not a good thing. Yeah, and I understand there's there's a lot of opinion on both sides, and having been a deputy, I, I understand it, and, and sadly I have a, an in-law who on Monday night was a police officer. He went to work, went to domestic. The man was intent on killing someone, and he, he killed my in-law who died um, this morning after surgery. And, and he was a police officer. He was just going to work, and some man who had a gun, who didn't need one, who beating up a girlfriend or a wife, decided to to not only try to kill her, but kill the people who were coming to help her. Um, they're not going to go away. So what we have to figure out, how to do is have, and I don't use the word control, this goes back to what are we doing with our education system? What are we doing with training people? And what world are we teaching people that on TV it's okay without the sights and sounds to do all these things because they're not real so that when they happen, they don't really know the difference. And that, that, is, that is so true. By the way, I, I am so sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and, uh, that, where was he, where was he working? Uh, well, his name was Sherman Benny's and he was a uh, policeman in Kingsville, Texas. That's just, it's just horrible. Yeah. Know? He's, you know, he's got a father, uh, three children. He's a grandfather, a wife and served his community for almost 19 years as, you know, as an honorable police officer and dispatched to a normal call and domestics. Every law enforcement officer knows how dangerous they are. And, and this guy decided that he had a different thought process for the day and had a tool to do it. And now he'll suffer the consequences, but the, the ramification for the family and yeah. is, is huge. They did catch him then. Uh, yeah. He was arrested um, after a short chase. That's just, you know, I, 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 all I can say is I'm sorry. I, yeah, well, thank you for that. You know, and, and honestly, uh, I appreciate you coming here and talking to us today, given that set of circumstances. That That's really that's really nice of you to do. Well, you're welcome. It's, it's important. Uh, I, I think that the more we help people understand that everything is not gloom and doom, that they're still good, and there's a lot of people trying to do good in the world, um, makes a difference, I hope. Well, I can tell you this. the uh, um, you're, You have done good in the world. You are going to continue to do good in the world, and this book is going to help. Uh, by the way, the the name is Personal Effects. That's the name of the book, and it, it's a, it's about returning personal effects of people that perish in horrific circumstances, and and um, that means something to people when you're when you're able to do that. Well, thank you. 
that's 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 really huge would you i would like to give you the opportunity uh by the way is it robert or is it bob what, what would you prefer <laughs> i have so many names that people have called me <laughs> i won't answer it about anything <laughs> okay. I just always try to use the A because whenever because Robert Robert Jensen you know, you know there's a million and you go to Norway or Sweden or Denmark there's a bazillion Jensens so I always use Robert A when I'm printing something but no Bob or Robert's fine. Oh, very nice. Uh, how about Robert A? That, that I'll do. The, yeah, that's 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 good. I it's, I would like you to have the opportunity to talk to the audience that's listening now and the ones that are going to be listening because this is going to be up for a very long time. It's going to be a very important piece. What would you like to them to know? Um, well, you know, I, I guess I'd tell people that I, I've seen probably the worst the world has to throw and I still like the world and I still like getting up most days and my bad days, everyone does, but the things that are troubling us probably aren't as bad as we think they are. And, and I'm not talking about being, toxic positivity. I'm not talking about toxic negativity. I'm talking about keeping things in perspective and learning to focus on the things you can control because we spend a lot of time on the things we can't control. And so we waste that time and we have that negative emotion when if we focus on the things we can control and slow down a little bit, life is actually pretty good. I couldn't have said that better myself, Robert A., it's 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 really been a pleasure talking to you today. I want to honor your time because our time is coming to a close. But I just want to say thank you very much on behalf of everybody for the service that you've given us over time. Well, on behalf of all the responders, because they're they're a lot of police, it's, law enforcement, fire, search and rescue, volunteer. I would say thank you. It and is awesome, and I don't know how you guys do it, and but I, all I can tell you is, thank God you're there, um, because. Without you guys, it would be a lot worse than it is. I just, just as an aside, I just had a memory flashback. I witnessed a suicide, and uh, and it was, it was it was like right in front of me, and I was kind of out of sorts. And I'll never forget. I, we were in the woods, and I had to go up an embankment, and there was a firefighter there, and his strong hand reached for my hand, and he helped me up the embankment, and it was like he was he, he was like he was taking and 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 holding me in his arms because it was it, it was a touch of another human being and it meant so much to me that that um that somebody would care to do that and it it really was a phenomenal moment in time for me i just wanted to share that and yeah. and that that's the memory to have not the horrible event but the response to the event that's exactly right. And then and thank God for responders because they do incredible work every day and the police as well. And again, I I'm so sorry for what happened to your to your uh, um relative. So, we've been talking with Robert A Jetson and the name of the book is Personal Effects. Go get it. It's brand new out. It's doing really well from what I understand. Well, I just hope that People enjoy it. That's that's the point. Otherwise, don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. I, I've been told, and the reviews. It's a real page turner. So, so. I, yeah, that's. Yeah, I think people like it. Yeah. If you'll stay right there, I'll be right back. I got to do this, and then we'll say goodbye. Thank you. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. 
Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.